0: Welcome back everyone to another tale of the Resist 40 Tales of Outliers podcast and this week is tale 27 which means we have been doing the podcast now for over half a year. So before we jump in to this week's story with Caroline Stokes. We really just wanted to say thank you on behalf of Trev and I to everyone that has supported us along the way. Supported the Resist 40 Tales of Outliers podcast. And I know I speak for Trev when I say we are so grateful for the reviews, for the likes, for the comments, and then also for the individuals that have reached out with personal messages, personal stories, people that have started businesses, got involved in nonprofits, took that international trip because they felt challenged to through the podcast. So we are grateful that every week we get to sit down with individuals that are outliers and individuals whose stories are really challenging others to go out and to be an outlier in their own industry. And this week is certainly no exception with Caroline Stokes. Caroline is a top executive coach a top recruiter really internationally working to place individuals at companies like Amazon, EA Sports, Disney, and is really focused on the company culture. She doesn't just recruit and place someone somewhere, but she has a process to make sure that these individuals are being placed in a position that is going to allow them to flourish and succeed within that organization. And Caroline is also a lead contributor to organizations and platforms like Forbes, The HuffPost, VentureBeat as well as just really really being involved in the AI and VR spectrums as well so a lot of different topics covered in this week's podcast and uh, as always we think that you are going to enjoy this so without further ado Caroline Stokes. This forty tales of outliers. On this week's tale, we are sitting down with Caroline Stokes, and I uh, I don't know how to introduce her because there are so many different things that Caroline is involved in, from recruiting to different uh, platforms that she writes for, coaching podcasts. So, Caroline, you are uh, involved in quite a bit, to say the least.
1: Yes, I am. Uh, and and you're right. It is very very hard to encapsulate what I do. It's it, I've, I've I've spent a good five years trying to work out what it is. But thank you very much for inviting me onto your podcast. I'm, I'm a huge fan of what you do, and quite frankly, the, the the path that you guys have taken is very close to my heart. So thank you.
2: Awesome. I appreciate that, and I'm sure we will touch upon you know a little bit of everything that you're involved in. So I love your accent. I'll say that to start. So (laughs) where are you from and what was childhood like for you?
1: That's a big one. Okay. So what was my childhood like? I was raised in the UK and Singapore and uh, I was very lucky because I, I think when you're raised in Singapore between the ages of about five and eight, I think it was around, no, about five and seven, your outlook on life has changed dramatically because when you're having those life experiences and you're, it's, you're just constantly bombarded with different temperatures, different cultures, different ways of living. Uh, when you go back to your traditional culture, it's a, it's a huge culture shock. You know, I just remember going back to England and th- thinking, why have people got these really big, heavy curtains on their uh, on their wa- on their uh, windows? Well, why why don't they just have uh, you know light drapes to let the light come in or whatever it was, and uh, thick? rugs that just looked dirty <laughs> compared to having marble floors or wooden floors everywhere. So life, life was very, very different. And I think that was the best gift my parents could have given me because it enabled me to see life differently at a very, very young age and to realize that there is always, there are other perspectives. Uh, there are different backgrounds. There are different beliefs. There's just so many different societal norms that people live live in, depending on where they are in the world, and uh, just look at and I look at things very, very differently. So that that was my upbringing, and I just remember being six years of age and going out with my pocket money to the candy store, but it wasn't a candy store; it was basically a hut down a little kind of alleyway and now if you were to let kids go down and do that now you'd go whoa you'd you know the the stuff isn't packaged you 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 shouldn't have that you shouldn't go anywhere near them you you know can't trust them you know I I had an awful lot of freedom and it was a wonderful wonderful thing uh then I went back to the UK and uh and I remember saying to my father some years later why did we go back to the UK (laughs) it was so cool in Singapore and um my my dad said well you know we we spent two or three years in Singapore that that was that that was that was then that was the 70s and uh, I just remember finding it very difficult to get back into or or to adapt into a, a British environment and uh And uh, I've tried finding my way out of Britain um, on numerous occasions throughout my life, throughout my twenties and thirties. And now I'm here in Vancouver for the past 12 years in my forties.
0: Yeah. So Caroline, you mentioned, I mean, six years old, your pocket money going down to the candy store. What were you doing as a kid? I mean, were you someone who loved to be kind of creating different things and and working for an allowance with the family or, or from a young age?
1: I think I showed a variety of entrepreneurial moments when I was kind of a little bit older. Uh, But at around about six, I I was really kind of, I remember I heard about jogging. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go jogging. So I ran outside the house and I hardly got past the gates because the next door neighbors, um, Dobermans, were barking at me and you know when you're six you're tiny and and uh I just stood there with my eyes closed <laughs> I don't think I'm, I felt like I, I didn't move for 30 minutes uh you know and I would just go adventuring by myself I would say to my I remember going to Thailand as a kid my my dad I think was on a business trip and uh we stayed in the client's house a uh, beautiful house and I remember They went off to this alligator farm to see this alligator show or whatever they did. And I said at six, seven years of age, I'm not coming with you. I'm going to stay here. And I had this really big opinion that, no, I didn't need to go with you. I'm going to have my own adventure. Next thing I know, I got bored of being in the in the house by myself and in 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 Thailand when somebody owns a very large house on a very large plot of land people usually have a variety of people working for them within the house groundsmen and and uh, butlers and stuff like that and i remember quite vividly <laughs> I don't know how this happened but it happened. <laughs> I remember saying to the groundsman, "I'm really bored." He said, "Well, I'm going to go into town. Do you want to come with me?" So I went on the back of his bike and I was away for hours just exploring Bangkok by myself at oh, eight, you six, that? 6 or 7.
2: Oh my god. <laughs>
1: Again, you can't imagine that kind of stuff happening now. So I really liked going on grand adventures um, and not understanding what the potential consequences could be. There was a lot of unknowing, I mean, I just had blind faith that everything would, there was nothing wrong with doing what I was doing. And I simply, you know, just did what I did. My parents, when when I got back, my parents were like, oh my God, where were you? What were you doing? You shouldn't do this. Uh, You know, I remember that and I'm like, meh. (laughs)
2: <laughs> whatever <laughs> so, so it seemed like you traveled um a good amount so what was that like were your parents really big into traveling or were you the catalyst there because you felt like going on these adventures
1: well, they, my, my father was in banking. So, so part of his okay. role was, was to work in different countries. And when we went back to the UK, he would spend a lot of time in, in China. So, or in Finland, depending on who his uh, employer was at the time. And so he he would be the, the key driver. And I was very grateful for that it was a great wonderful experience you don't realize how wonderful it is when you're a kid and you go through those experiences and i try and extend that type of uh, experience those experiences to my children but it's, it's different you know you don't have that level of freedom uh that you did, that one had in the 70s where it was a little bit more carefree um so back to ask asking a question i think that there, there was that there was the, the 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 family would move around and i think combined with the fact that no, you can't do that, it's not safe, was really not part of the the vocabulary back in the 70s. So I just kind of, I just wondered, wasn't that, or I was necessarily naughty. I think I was probably naughty on a few occasions at school where I said to a friend, my mom said I can come and stay at your house, you know, that kind of naughtiness. But in in general, it was just like, oh, I want to go on and do an adventure. I was just like, oh, I'm just going to go and explore, a bit like Huckleberry Finn, just going off and doing something. That's it. So as a
0: student, Caroline, what was it like kind of going from school to school? And were you passionate about school? Did you enjoy education or were you kind of more excited to get out of the
1: classroom? (laughs) That's, oh, I do like these questions. I mean, oh, where was I? What was I doing? I discovered that I was a bit of a workaholic from the time that I was about 10. Nothing's really changed since then. I, I, at that time, again, it was the 80s. And it it's yeah, very early 80s. And I remember y- you didn't get homework as a kid. Seriously, life has changed so much in the past few decades. And uh, uh, kids didn't get that, didn't get any homework. But I, I wanted to be prepared for secondary school. So I, I said to my teacher, Mr. Sharp, can I have some homework, please? And he kind of looked at me as if to say, oh, I don't really need this extra work, but sure, here, have some homework. Next day, I'll bring it in. He said, you don't have to bring it in every day. And I was like, oh, no, I, I want to. I want to be prepared for secondary school. And so I've always had that kind of attitude of of wanting to, 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 to be prepared, to do well, uh, to, yeah, to do well. I wasn't an A++++ plus student. Um, otherwise, I think I would have gone down the industrial... Um, Behavior or, or in, in industrial or organizational uh, behavior type uh, PhD type route, but that that type of stuff wasn't even on my horizon back then because I was really focused on business. That was the route that I decided to, you know I'd take in my teens. So yeah, it, I, I I worked hard. I liked working on my on. St- I liked studying in the evenings, and I still do. Um, I would rather work or study versus uh going out
2: so did you uh switch schools like multiple times or how did that work when you went from um how how many schools did you end up uh attending when you were younger
1: uh, compared to, you know, people that may tra- travel around with, with, uh, as, as a child with, with, you know, army parents or anything like that, not many times. So maybe uh, I, I went to about five schools maximum in, you know, during my, during my education. So not nothing, well, before, before going to college, nothing, nothing crazy, nothing crazy, but it was enough.
0: <laughs> so when you were, when you were starting to getting more invested into your studies and enjoying kind of the, the homework and the education of it all. Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do as far as a career? Did you know there was a specific university that you wanted to go to?
1: I wanted to do business. It was as simple as that. So I went and put, uh, put myself onto a, a diploma in business and finance. Uh, and when I was sixteen, and uh, I had a lot of a lot of my teachers were thinking, mm, why are you going down that route you know we 've been studying English and geography, and again, I was very, very focused on the business aspect and Then it was really when i was you, you go through the different modules, you know human resources, marketing, organization and the, its environment." advertising, people in organizations, all of these different things. And I found all of them, apart from accounting, uh, analytics, uh, basically the human side, the human aspect, particular and marketing aspect, very, very interesting. So I, I just gravitated towards those two. And as mm-hmm. as things un, un evolved, I should say, uh i had a choice do i want to take the marketing route and it was it was a semi-conscious choice which was do i take the marketing route or do i take the hr route and at the time i was thinking hr isn't that sexy really i'm gonna take the marketing route and that's when and because i was very passionate about technology at that time uh my family were was one of the first families in the uk to get a zx81 sinclair zx81 which is, it was a terrible device. And I tried programming on it and I failed abysmally. So I realized I wasn't, I wasn't going to be a programmer because I didn't want to try and solve that problem. But I was very curious about, why people were interested in it and buying something like that and what they could do with it. And and then I remember the family came into contact with the VIC-20, the Commodore 64, uh, the Amiga range of products, PCs, all of the different technologies that came out at around about that time, probably at the same rate that there's a new mobile phone coming out uh, now. And uh, we, we just had all of that technology at our fingertips. And, and I was just fascinated uh, by it. And that's when I realized, uh, you know, I was interested in the latest phones and things like that and so I took the the route of marketing with within the technology environment that was that was my route but it wasn't until I was um, I was working for Sony in the 90s and uh, I hadn't been there very long maybe a few years and and there was something really bugging me it was really troubling me and I was thinking okay what what's not working here there's something not working and that's when I realized the reality is, is that, and we know this now, that uh, it's the people behind the product that makes, makes the organization and the product tick, makes the marketing work well, and, you know, the, and understanding the, 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 the brain and the decisions that, that are made. Uh, so that's when I realized I was going to make a conscious decision to work more on the human to human connected side, looking at uh, leadership behaviors, how to evolve um, teams and individuals to move forward
2: so before we get to that the, that aspect of of the human side and and more of that hr side i'm just curious about you know you're getting into marketing earlier in the late 80s early 90s what was that like? What was the marketing scene like? Like, what were you excited about doing? Because I'm obviously it's a little bit different with the marketing nowadays. So, what was that marketing scene like then?
1: It was so basic. So, just to put it all into context, sorry, my chair. I've got a very squeaky chair that I need to have oiled on the weekend. Um, it was so basic, but it was so glamorous at the same time. So, uh, advertising agencies would be focusing on TV commercials, cinema commercials. Mm-hmm. That they would be the uh, sponsorship at at football events soccer events uh to to people in north america and uh, you know and and maybe some kind of experiential thing but even that was a little bit too far in advanced the the consumer was not very sophisticated back then they were a lot more um gullible (laughs) uh you know because you just have to look back at the 70s and the 80s and it was just, it just wasn't very sophisticated. People thought they were sophisticated, but really, you know, we had, we didn't have the the internet then. So we we weren't able to uh, learn things at at the super super fast, quick pace that we do now. So back then it was a case of every month you would buy a magazine and that magazine would give you an indication of what products are coming out, what price that you can get them for and which retail outlets you could buy them from and that was that was your your distribution channel that is how you communicated to people get going from a to b to c and by the way you would buy those publications at a newsstand on the street or you would go into a a news agent specifically to buy those publications or you would go into uh, you know a special a specialist bookstore. it was so simple and advertising played such a significant role because t v then was a sit down event whereby there was no video recorder there was i mean video recorders did become did become a thing but um you, you wouldn't you wouldn 't often get repeats, you might have four channels, actually no, I remember when there was only two channels and then i t v came along, which is the third channel, and then the fourth channel came along, which was channel four and they, it was a big event when those kind of things happened, and uh everybody would look forward to saturday nights or saturday morning or sunday morning special tv shows and you know between the hours of 11 o'clock at night through to six o'clock in the morning there would be no tv you know uh, uh, being broadcast or anything like that radio commercials were were were, were very influential and uh, you know back then it, it was it really was a simpler time and i'm not saying that in a as if i miss it it, I'm, I'm kind of <laughs> thinking about it that we, we we just have evolved as a species and uh and and, and, and in our expectations so dramatically uh it's it, and it's nice to actually contemplate it for a few minutes um but at that time it it everything moved much slower on sundays sto- stores did not open so then you know fast forward a few years, there would be uproar. If stores wanted to open on Sunday, there would be uproar. If bars or pubs opened at in, in uh, at, uh, 11 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday, there was uproar. You know, it's like, this is big news. You can't have this happen. But, you know, times change and now you can, you know, pretty much do anything at any time, anywhere. And that's the culture that we have now. But at that time, everything was very limited. It was a big event to get an answering machine. It was a big event to have two telephones in your house. It was a big event uh, whereby you know you'd watch tv and then there would be these commercials and you would then be driven to i was like oh there's a new Tetley's tea bag why why have they gone from square to round that seems ridiculous oh you're, you're gonna get a more superior cup of tea i must try that uh and <laughs>
0: stuff but, like that uh, so hearing all of that caroline it's interesting because what I'm hearing <laughs> i know crazy huh yeah what i'm hearing is the advertisement in some ways seemed a lot more effective so I guess thinking about right now and even again to touch on what you're involved in I mean you have a podcast you have some companies that you founded that you're involved in you're doing coaching you have such a strong presence on some of the the biggest publications do you find that it I guess kind of looking now from an advertising and from a marketing standpoint would you say it's harder now because there's so many different platforms or would you say it was harder back then because there were so few
1: it was very easy back then and i will i will explain why and ha- and the, and the, there was a great turning point there were two great tu- turning points excuse me so the two great turning points that that i recall quite vividly um, and you, you're having to think about this from a European lens, not necessarily a North American lens. And I remember whenever I would come to America, America would just be so much more advanced in in, in their media production and their output, which is why Hollywood is w- what Hollywood is. Um, and the TV industry there, here, I should say, in North America. So going back to the 80s... And the early 90s just before the internet was born you had four channels you had a few radio stations and you had publications uh, so you had the print media you had the uh tv you had you had broadcast and uh print broadcast and let's say newspapers as in print as well so when you could, when you needed to target one million people you knew that you would go let's say and advertise in 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 The Guardian newspaper, for example, and at that exact same time, you would make sure that you had a TV advert running for you know two weeks, and at exact the same time, you would have a radio campaign. Now, it is ever since the internet, uh, which you know we all know that we have a love hate relationship with it, and there's there's lots of studies going out saying oh you know it's it's not good for us, but here we are. Um, We back then there was this. I remember going to a marketing conference and people saying things have changed so much. We now have a tsunami of information from a consumer's perspective. There is a tsunami of information being thrown at uh, the consumer and, and it's hard for them to dissect what they need to dissect to make any decisions. So there's that since then people now have there are just so many different media outlets there's so many different channels whether it's you know all of the different micro channels on youtube or particular you know on online groups and you know so on and so forth podcasts uh, it, 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 it's just it's, not, it's non-stop now for a market a company to market individuals it's it's not straightforward at all. So yes, it was easier then, but at that point, everything was very, very expensive now, because everything is so fragmented and it's hard to be able to uh, target your ideal customer or your ideal client. It's a case of then you, you have to spread more bets across, across all of those different environments.
0: So was it a similar cost back then with, you know, what it would take to get an ad on TV or on the radio Versus, you know, running a Facebook campaign
1: now. You can run a Facebook campaign quite, quite cheaply, you know, if you want to just test something out. I think the difference is, is that you can target your ideal users. I, if I wanted to target somebody on Facebook, I could say I want to target 40-year-old women in the Bend, Oregon region that enjoy darts.
0: Yeah.
1: It can be so specific. But I haven't done a campaign quite like that, so I couldn't say to you whether or not that would work for yeah. that someone in Bend, Oregon, that's fe- Oregon, that's female, that uh, likes darts. But it, the 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 reality is, yes, you, you can do that, and th- this is why, from a marketing perspective, it's it's so powerful, um, which I'm sure you guys can attest to.
2: Sure, uh, for sure, definitely. Um, so I think that that'd be a good transition into how you came to that realization that you wanted to be more along of the human aspect of business and that human side. So what was that moment for you in marketing where you really realized I need to make that transition? And how was that period of time like for you?
1: So when I had the aha moment of, Oh, I'm much more passionate about the human uh, aspect. It's, um, It was really probably born from seeing uh, people unknowingly being unhappy. Mm -hmm. I think that's what it was. Uh, We were a really successful team, uh, riding on the success of a fantastic launch, a very, very, very desirable brand at the time, the PlayStation. And the reality was, was that you could see there was a lack of leadership because you know, that kind of, that kind of communication, that kind of language hadn't necessarily been created before. You, you know, we now take it for granted, you know, Satya, Satya Nadala, for example, right now, will will talk about culture development and how, you know, he can, he will talk about the, his son's disability and how that changed him, et cetera. He, he, there was no way back in that time that people would be so transparent and open and honest and raw and vulnerable about what was going on and uh you, you know i i'm I, I was able to sense the the temperature in the room and i could see everyone having different issues at different times and i thought there's something wrong here i, I want to i want to work out what it is that what, what it is that's going on and how teens can improve uh, from a functionality perspective all the way from hiring etc but i didn't have that clear thought <laughs> I didn't articulate it in that way it was a, a moment of frustration and and a, you know it was a ding moment that said there's something wrong here and that kind of moment then just keeps traveling with you until you get to a point of okay I now know what I need to do. Uh, I I remember I recall quite vividly um, I made lots of mistakes from that point I moved to Ireland thinking oh I should be launching I should be doing something with the PlayStation here in Ireland and then For whatever reason, I then joined my partner uh, at the time and uh, helped him launch his company. And all of that just felt like not the right steps for me. Uh, It was focusing on marketing versus an area that I really wanted to get into. And it wasn't until I moved to Australia for a little while and uh, had started exploring something called the hidden market. And that's when I thought, oh, this is how people can actually find their way and it was another way for you know finding your own work destiny and you know searching the hidden market that may not exist that doesn't exist sorry that does exist but you have to search for it you have to search for those roles and um, beyond beyond looking for an advert and this was all well before linkedin so you know it, it 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 was a complicated route And there was a there would have been a lot. And I remember there was a lot of angst, teenage angst in a 20 plus year old body trying to work out what is it that I need to do with my life. But I knew that that was a defining moment for it for me. And then over the period of time, I was just aggregating all of these different experiences from uh from working with my brain in a in a in, in a meditation environment in um in australia through to um dealing with some serious stress uh in australia during uh, the 9 11 time because a lot, lot of companies were not investing at that time so a lot of companies were were making redundancies and again i was just going what is going on here and with the clarity of hindsight i can look back and say okay all of these experiences gave me the ability to be able to say to understand all of the different life cycles of an organization or what happens within an economy what happens you know when 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 there's when it's a boom time when it's a bust time uh, what happens with people how how fragile humans are uh from the time that you're feeling particularly confident about something uh through to not feeling confident and that's from either seeing seeing the situation from a distance or helping people move on uh, or you know situations with myself um but yeah it's there were lots of ahas but it's it's like with anything uh you come to this from If you know that there's something wrong if if you and and I'll tell you who who um encapsulated this really well, I was talking to Jeff Hayden who writes for ink, and uh I said to him, so far, you've mentioned whining and whinging four times, and isn't that a great indication that there's something wrong and you've really got to do something about it yeah. <laughs> and that's what was going on throughout all of these little beats It's like there's something wrong and Nobody said to me because there was no kind of coaching mentality back then, or there, there was, but it was, it was not accessible like it is today, thanks to the internet. And, you know, I wish somebody had said to me, okay, so you know how you're, you're complaining about these issues, you know how these, these issues aren't working out. How can you connect all of these dots together? So I feel like at the ripe old age of 46, I could have probably, you know, turned this around significantly earlier, but this is the path. This is how it happened, and here we go.
0: So, Caroline, did you go to university, or did you go right into the workforce?
1: I went straight from college into the workforce. So, at 19, I had my first job, uh, and I was working with Virgin at 19 uh, as their PR manager, PR executive, I should say.
0: Okay. And then, was it a few years of kind of going from, I guess, country to country and job to job, or... Was it more so kind of being rooted in different places for a longer period of time?
1: I think I had 10 years of, so 19, 29, goodness gracious me. Uh, Yeah, there was a good 10 years of traveling around, finding myself, (laughs) if I can call it that, Uh, and, and experimenting. It was 10 years of experimentation. And the great thing is, is that those 10 years are exactly what you should be doing in your in your 20s experimenting trying on different companies trying on different roles trying on all of these different things to see what fits the problem is it's stressful and this is what all 20 year olds go through you know i can attest to it i went through it really really stressful and then you kind of get to the time when you're 30 and you can look back and go oh Kind of know what's working out here and what's not working out, and I remember I tried to make that change, but nine eleven happened, and I think it upset everybody's life at that time. At the same time that I decided that uh, having a family was a good time, at the same time that we moved country twice in one year, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So there was there was a bit of a hiccup, but that's life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So looking at kind of those those ten years, and you're learning, and you're figuring things out, and you're finding yourself in a lot of ways. And then kind of fast forwarding to some of the things that you're involved in now. And this was one thing, Caroline, that stuck out to me during our first phone call was just the passion that you had for making sure that when people do find a job or when they are looking for something, that it is the right fit. And I know that's a big piece of where Founder comes in, the company that you started, but talk about that process and kind of talk about what it is that you are working on now.
1: I was working for a headhunting company. It was about 10 years ago and I thought the big problem was that recruiters weren't able to find the right people because I would find that recruiters would come to me and and say, can you refer somebody? And I'd say, do you understand the job? What's going on here? That doesn't, what, what you're asking for doesn't make sense. You just need to search for them. And this was just before LinkedIn, uh, became, became a thing. And, um, when this person was on the phone to me uh, just before i was about to give birth to my second child uh she was saying oh can you do me a favor and go to your husband's company and and uh, try try and uh, f- ask him w- whether or not there's somebody that could come and work for this studio in the uk and i said no i can't i can't have him go and do your job that doesn't make sense <laughs> I didn't like it in the slightest. So that's when I had my big aha moment, because I basically in my mind, you know, was about to have a baby say, well, this is how you do your job. You need to identify what type of products uh, are related to the product that you're actually working on. Try and identify through Google uh who, who. Has been involved in those kind of roles before because there's going to be lists of people that that are on credit lists um, that that have been involved in that, and um, then you need to do X, Y, and Z to reach out to the person and uh, she's like oh that's a really good idea and i just remember cross going cross-eyed and just thinking to myself why, why am i dealing with a recruiter that does not know just how to to use some common sense here and that's when i had my aha moment because i thought oh i would be able to find really great people through through you know through my detective skills and my my energy and my enthusiasm and you know how that how that goes and uh, that's when i decided i was going to be a headhunter so i i um asked this person if she would introduce me to uh, the person that eventually became my business partner. And uh, I became a bona fide headhunter working with a, a heck of a lot of large companies and lots of new digital and inno- innovation-oriented spaces. Uh, just, you know, and around about the same time that Groupon came out, you know. So all, all of... The, we, we were working with Groupon clones, uh, working with newspaper agencies uh, that uh, were were creating all sorts of new, new, new online solutions. Uh, you know, this is before, uh, newspaper media, you know, realized it, that you actually had to pay for subscriptions and things like that, uh, through to working for online gaming companies and media companies and so on. And it, it, it was really great, but I had my, my big learning moment when I was working in that organization, we had just placed, uh, somebody that was previously from Amazon and the guy was a big Big deal. He'd, 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 uh, this is which we're talking seven, eight years ago, so t- whereby he had launched the mobile app for uh, Amazon, which, you know, eight years ago would have been a big deal, and um, placed him in, in Europe. And I remember just having a sinking feeling, thinking, oh, we've just placed this American with these CEOs that are Italian, and he's going to be in the UK. How's he going to cope? even if you've got fantastic skills as a leader, especially from Amazon and everybody who's worked at Amazon are just like best in class. There's a, there's just something that I could see or I could, I I had this in my mind that this person needed help um, to be able to integrate and transition successfully. So that was when the seed was first planted Uh, for me which was how can you help people transition and I again I had this whiny painful thing going on inside my mind and I was really unhappy I didn't like the fact that we were placing candidates and when we placed candidates they they were just left there so, and I thought there's something wrong. There's not enough service here. This just doesn't feel right. It's, it goes against my, my whole human beliefs here that it's, it's more about search. It's not just about search and finding the right person. How do you ensure that they are integrated uh, correctly? So fast forward a few years and uh, I resigned from my, from the company, the partnership that I, I was involved in uh, because I thought there's something wrong. I just can't deal with it. I don't know what it is. And Within two weeks, I came up with a concept. And I went to university, I became a certified executive coach, and um, uh, I, I created a whole new way of, way of doing it.
2: Nice. So for, for those, of, those of you who do not know, can you give us a little rundown of like what that looks like? So in terms of your services, what, would, what services do you provide and like what does that process look like for an individual who works with you?
1: Okay, so I'll give you the different services. So thank you for, thank you for that question. It's, it's a very generous question because I get to, to talk about it. So thank you. <laughs> it's a very generous question. Um, the first aspect is that, so I, I fo- founded... Uh, forward on the principle that when we search for innovation leaders that are able to take the the larger companies forward in some particular way some of our clients are like Autodesk and um, you know big big companies that uh, digital companies work with VFX work with games companies uh, in in, uh, VR companies and when we go out and we do a search, we provide them with a white glove treatment. So we're doing a lot of interaction. We we collaborate, Uh, there's transparency, there's under no circumstances do we try and shoehorn a a candidate in and we do not shoehorn a a, a client into a candidate. So that's that's just the the absolute rules. They are are the rules. Um, And our clients appreciate us for that. And then uh, we go through that hand-holding white glove uh, treatment throughout. Uh, we do the references and so on and so forth. And, you know, I will say to my client, if I don't think this person is going to be right for them, if I don't think the candidate is going to be right for them, and I'll, I'll question them on it and say, so tell me why it is that you think this person is the right fit for you. Uh, explain, you know, and I, w- I will go a little bit m- little bit deeper, but more often than not, I would say nine times out of 10, the, the candidates that, that uh, our client chooses, uh, and, and, and up selecting they they're they're, they're a good fit the or should I should say an excellent fit and then once they've been placed they the, the these candidates are then they receive first 100 days coaching so during that coaching program they are that I my relationship becomes I'm now completely my relationship with this candidate is now uh, on an equal footing whereby i will work with them on a confidential basis which means that under no circumstances am i permitted to talk to the other other person uh the, the client about them and the unique aspect about that and i have not come across any other organizations that do this as part of the uh, recruitment fee because this is my passion piece this is something that i strongly believe in uh, there are other organizations that want to be able to do it but they want to be able to mark it up substantially and i'm like well go ahead and do that you know Know, whatever you do that you 're happy with, but this is this is how I choose to do it uh, because it's it 's important to for everyone to be happy ultimately, and the clients like it but the one hundred days coaching is all about a kickoff meeting where everybody sits sits down. We can all be in different parts of the world, but we can all sit down on on Zoom or Skype. In particular, to have a, a conversation about what the, what, what the next 30, 60, 90 days look like. What are the what are the norms? What what is, what, what goes on? Through to then doing weekly coaching in emotional intelligence quotient uh, evaluation and a debrief, more weekly coaching, and at the end there's a 360 with all of the different uh, participants, and that ensures that the person then knows. What, what good looks like for the next uh, 90 days plus. And that's the end of that particular relationship. And then, so that's that. That's the headhunting model. But there's also executive coaching that's conducted with a variety of our clients, specifically where they're trying to evolve their culture, uh, specifically on diversity. I'll give you an example. Phil Spencer from Microsoft. He's the senior vice president of Microsoft and reports directly to Satya Nadella. And his presentation at a dice a couple of weeks ago was all about how you can as, as a games creator how can you create um a world just like they create online worlds for for gamers how can you create a world in the office or the studio that reflects the audience that you're selling your products to. Uh and that means, you know, where you're where you feel safe being in work, where you you're you're able to um go through unconscious biases and empathy there can be trust there's you know direct communication something that Kim Scott talks about radical candor and uh, so that that's a really important aspect as well as part of executive coaching and it could involve um, leadership coaching for emerging leaders often women uh, or leaders that need to grow grow within the organization that might go beyond a typical corn fairy style leadership program or a center for leadership uh, program or a program or anything like that and then the other thing that is under the forward umbrella is anyone that needs some some form of coaching to help them uh, transition in their career Uh, and that is always complicated i know it's always complicated because you've just heard how complicated my first 40 years were (laughs) So I know how hard and how ambiguous and how challenging and how stressful it is, uh, but I'm qualified to do it. So it's, it, it's good because it's, it's something I'm particularly passionate about because I, 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 I know that pain. And, and, and the, the challenge is, is that when people go to a coach or let's say you go to a doctor and you want to be fixed, but you've got something like anemia, but it's going to take six months to feel better again until you're, you've are you got your iron levels mixed up. It's the same thing with going to a coach and you're wanting to go through transition. It's six months of hard work to get back, to get to that level that you want to be able to get to. And so, you know, nothing's easy in life.
0: Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking, Caroline, you've been involved with companies like Amazon, Disney, Microsoft. What do you think it is that kind of sets you apart? I know a, a big piece of that is the 100-day Uh, essentially coaching piece that you have, but how have you been able to form those relationships with obviously some of the most recognizable and successful companies in the world?
1: Thank you. Uh, I think, well, I, I can, I can tell you why right now. And that is you've got to give. So what happens? <laughs> and I know that sounds really vague, but you've got to give. And one of the things that you're doing right now is creating a podcast that is giving to other people. And before I started having, oh, before I started my own podcast that we haven't even talked about, and I'm more than happy not to talk about it, by the way, they're not plugging to talk about it. Yeah. But um, one of the things that you're doing is that you're giving people tools to help them move forward. I spent the majority of my career I spent the majority of my career helping people in various ways and also building up my professional um, credibility, uh, doing what I was good at and, and ensuring that whatever I did would make companies profitable and successful. And as a headhunter, people would come to me and they would find that there was a very distinct difference when working with me compared to maybe other people in the in the industry. So when you kind of create that positive service and experience for people, it's it becomes, I would say, easy but it's not easy as you know uh, to act to, to to have companies approach you and say I, I we would like you to work with us on this particular aspect and and go from that and because i've been focusing on interactive entertainment for the past six seven years something like that uh it's a you, you you become entrenched in it if i was in focused on finance it would be you know very different as well uh but i think the, the the key thing is be good at what you do give a lot um be impeccable i had somebody come back to me this week and say caroline your your follow-up is impeccable because she had sent me something to to try out her um uh course uh just to try it out and uh, and I was very grateful because I know that she's saving me about $10,000 to try it out and to give her some feedback. And I've just had my plate full. So I, I sent her an email thinking, oh, she's probably wondering why I have even gone into the course yet because you can always tell if somebody's gone in and, and done something. Uh, so I sent her a message and I said, "I'm really sorry. I, I'm pushing out two courses this week. I just don't have the bandwidth this week, but I promise I will do it next week." And her response was, "Your, your follow up is impeccable." Uh, so it's it's really about not getting dragged down and thinking about other people, but being able to acknowledge, "Okay, I'm really sorry. I haven't done this." I want to do it and I'm going to do it, but it's not going to happen until next week. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that kind of, that kind of communication, uh, is if you can try and do that with everyone, you know, there's always going to be someone that slips through the net, but, um, you know, best intentions, et cetera. But if you can follow through with that kind of mindset of everyone that you touch and communicate with, uh, you guys, for example, we, we were supposed to do something a couple of weeks ago and then you followed up, you followed up. I mean, that's, that's awesome. Uh, when, when you become known for doing something and you can create those connections that are, and I hate to use this phrase because I think it's overused, authentic, um, it, you know, a true connection, then and people like working with you and you are able to provide them with something that they enjoy using. You're there.
2: I love that. So, Caroline, for those... Um... For those listening, it doesn't even have to necessarily be younger. It could be uh, an older demographic. If someone feels like they don't enjoy what they do right now or or feel a little bit lost without obviously giving away all your secrets, what are some things that, you know, people can implement to try and find a better job or try and find something that they're more passionate about doing? Like, what is your advice and, and what are some things that people can implement?
1: Well, first off, as I said, with uh, uh, Jeff Hayden said it so brilliantly, and his book, The Motivation Myth, is bang on (laughs) with all of this, which is that if you're not happy with something and you're annoying your partner or you're whining to your friends when you're out in the bar, and it just keeps building up and building up, you've got to do something about it. Uh, That's the first rule. Do not carry that pain with you because it's pain it's anguish you're not feeling happy there's you've got you've got a you've got to be in your bonnet and you've got this cancerous lump growing you, you know you spoon it out uh that's an awful image to think about but you know if it's there you've got to you've got to acknowledge it and recognize it and think to yourself and ask the question to yourself What are you going to do about it? That really is the most important thing. What are you going to do about it? And sometimes just asking yourself that question is probably the most powerful aspect that you can self-coach yourself about uh, before saying, oh, you should do X, Y, and Z, X, Y, and Z. Z." Uh, As we know, Google is fantastic at that. Once you're able to work out what is it that you want to do or if you have a variety of options to look at, google it and just just explore until something resonates with you uh the one thing i would say is if you're in a job uh right now uh and you're not happy with it uh acknowledging that you're not happy with it and i have to be careful about what i recommend because it really does depend on your organization uh whether or not you can be transparent with them some organizations are love the transparency because they want to be able to create an exit strategy so you're then able to say so they can then bring somebody in so there's this the transition is smooth other companies if you say something to them they'll they'll fire you on the spot because they're worried that you 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 might um Uh, disrupt the entire boat so it's 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 a challenging situation on a a case-by-case basis Uh, but whatever you do you're going to probably understand and hear that with each with each organization and each industry you might you might find yourself in a in a unique situation where you could be employed the next day or you could take 6 months off and know that your skills are in such high demand that you're able to go straight back to work and the fact that you took 6 months off is not a problem it you know it, it's a unique case by case basis on you know what whatever on whatever you might want to do uh, some people want to go back to college university they want to take some time out to do a course some people want to go and have a family for six months or a year or whatever whatever however much time they need to take off to do it and you know live there is there is a life to to have beyond work so it's it really is a case-by-case basis and what what people do uh, but acknowledging the The whining and the whinging and the dissatisfaction and the disgruntlement is is huge because sometimes we we can go on for weeks without realizing that there 's something wrong because it just kind of emerges and manifests itself and creates this nasty sensation that just keeps coming on and what is wrong with me why am I grumpy what is it that I'm not happy about why am I not getting on with my boss why am I not getting on with whatever and to identify what really is going on and um not relying on people or friends that are just going to say that are just going to say yes And you you need to be able to confide in people that really can give you some great mentoring advice and to accept it from as many people as possible. But when you do accept mentoring advice, remember to give something back in return at some stage um, and to say thank you. I find that uh, a lot of people don't say thank you when they do get mentoring advice.
0: Yeah, that's huge. And I know, Caroline, you, in addition to the company and you have the podcast, you're, you're also... A huge contributor to a lot of different platforms. I know you write for, hmm. those for Forbes. The probably the most interesting title that I have read is "How the Unicorn Dinosaur." <laughs> <is> <laughs> of so, just picking one random article out, explain that title for someone who is completely lost.
1: Okay, unicorn dinosaurs. Think about Ford. There, there used to be a dinosaur. You know, it's like holy heck. You, you've, you've then got uh, Tesla that are making Ford look look bad. But what Ford d- decided to do was to invest with I think it's Mercedes Benz, no Daimler. Uh, they decided to invest with Daimler, uh, a joint venture with a uh, company here in Vancouver, so they could create fuel cell. Uh, technology and uh, so they could so they, they could adapt, so they created or they acquired the technology which would enable them to become a unicorn dinosaur, so they didn 't just you know fade off into the sunset like the like the news agents of old and and things like that so that's that 's a unicorn di- dinosaur that is sorry let me start again with the squeaking
2: <laughs> so
1: so that 's a unicorn dinosaur and uh, an example of one uh, whereas you 've got the new age digital organizations that have uh, that have grown from being a digital being a pure play digital organization uh disrupting the traditional the car manufacturing industry would be tesla um you know look at what jaguar is doing right now not jaguar porsche they announced last week that they were they 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 had a uh, an electric vehicle that would compete with uh, tesla and that's that's all great that's all fantastic um so that's the kind of organization this when traditional organizations and you can think about telcos and you can think about any of these that have been around for 50 60 years and they then have to acquire or build from scratch usually acquisition is the cheapest and fastest way because then you're 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 buying acquiring something that has already been uh successful uh, and proven, and it's less of a risk than you know creating something inside. And then those companies are then integrated within the organisation, and that in, in level of integration it, in itself is particularly challenging because you're 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 having to get the dinosaur style uh, mentality up to speed with the unicorn style mentality. And as we know, if you've got those unicorns that are used to uh, how do I say this uh, a faster way of life to go into a corporate structure can be very unattractive unless there is there is they, they, they are able to maintain autonomy and move move their environment for forward and dynamically uh, with with that safety net of of you know their their war chest and what have you yeah. so that 's kind of where that 's at and then you have to think about the the talent, for example, the talent that are, that I've been finding, and that's why I wrote the article, the talent that's most desirable are the people that have been in both sides. Because when you are trying to launch new technology, uh, you need to have people that understand the traditional so they, they, can, they can speak both unicorn and dinosaur in both of those environments. That's how you have the credibility. So... Being a unicorn dinosaur is a very, very positive, strong attribute to have. So in a way, your, your Generation X people uh, are going to be desirable because they've been in both of those, those, those camps. And uh, they're going to be able to communicate most more effectively with um, millennials than if you just came across a Generation X dinosaur. There we go. That's, that's, that, and, and that's not quite how I worded it in the article.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think, honestly, that was the first time I'd ever heard the concept. And once, it's such an interesting concept. But I also know that you used the example of Ford and talking about Argo AI. And I know that a lot of your writing is kind of geared towards the artificial intelligence. You mentioned virtual reality earlier. So as we start to kind of wrap up and as we're looking ahead, do you see... And I guess this is maybe a silly question, AI, just completely the future. And how does that affect also, you know, the recruitment aspect of things?
1: That's not a wrap up question. That is a huge question. (laughs) Well, first of all, let me just say that the person that coined the phrase unicorn dinosaur was John Coetzee and he wrote an amazing article uh, or should I say, I think, goodness knows how many thousand words report uh, for his company Tune. So that, that is what helps inspire that, um, that article. So that's all down to him. Um, so in terms of AI, the future, uh, where that's going. So, it's an interesting situation. Now I sit here in this room with no access to any artificial intelligence technology or engineers or data analysts or anything like that. But what I do have, thanks to my podcast, the Emotionally Intelligent um, Recruiter podcast and a sense of instinct, thanks to being involved in technology for a long time. And thanks to having again, a lot of conversations in, with with um, analysts and what I call futurologists and uh, people, for example, at Corn Ferry, they are all working very diligently, very quickly, very dynamically on finding systems and technology and building systems and technology that will empower a recruiter to expedite the search and the selection. And evaluation. So the recruiter is therefore able to do all of the human to human connected aspect. And everyone I speak to, actually, no, we've got two different camps. I'm going to use my hands now. On one camp, we've got the people that say, oh, that's never going to happen, you know, oh, everybody's um, exaggerating that it's going to be a really important force. But when you hear Corn Ferry say, we're making really big advances and we're investing a lot into it and it's going to happen sooner than you would imagine and you also speak with other people in the data analytics environment with regards to um, assessments etc it's all going to merge merge rapidly um so I, i find that the people that say oh it's never going to affect us so you know we're going to be fine aren't being open-minded about the wonderful potential for their careers to adapt and they're ignoring the potential for their organizations that will enable the organizations to be more competitive so it's one of those things where from an AI perspective I mean it's it's such a it's such a phrase isn't it it's such an acronym that is you know is overused everywhere right now and that's fine but things are happening there is some significant movement and I'm really excited about the potential and the possibilities
2: well I think that is a perfect transition where it's like a, a futuristic style question yeah to one of our main questions that we ask every one of our guests so The first question being, if you were to encounter another living species, another form of life that visited planet Earth, and you were tasked with being the tour guide of humanity, how would you describe society and the world that we live in to (sighs) them?
1: What a great question. Uh, My immediate thoughts, I had two words that came up, uh, fractured uh diverse uh complicated um, unpredictable fascinating <laughs>
2: uh, uh, yeah
1: completely unpredictable i think that's that that is that is yeah if somebody came down and and Came onto this planet and came into this room. This, this is a nice, quiet room, okay? And they'd be fascinated with all of the stuff that would be uh, that to, to play with and look at and would be wondering why certain things are on the floor, why, why, something's on the, why something is on the wall. But if you were to then take them into the middle of Tokyo or to take them into the middle of New York or to take them into the middle of, a, of the prairies or take them to Windsor Castle in England or, you know, or to the pyramids. Um, or to a busy, um, n- to go to New Delhi, uh, it, it would just blow your mind. There are so many worlds that we have with- within our worlds that trying to comprehend all of that is just, it's just phenomenal.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. So I guess, uh, thinking about all of that and everything that kind of exists in the world, um, another question that we ask all of our guests is if you were to have one final post on either Facebook or Instagram, or maybe in your case, Caroline, maybe one final article that you could write or share. What would that post be, and and what would uh, the caption be?
1: <laughs> one final post. Well, actually, I've just written one that I I feel like I've I've got nothing after that. Um, I'm writing something. <laughs> <laughs> for um, VentureBeat, and it's it's uh, it's called the Road to Diversity: How One Executive Coach, Games Industry Veteran, Twenty Five Years, Can See the Reality Gap on Where We Are and Where We Need to Go in in the Sense of Diversity, and it was it was a real brain tease to, to work on it, uh, because, and it was quite a big project because it's all started off with going to, um, DICE in Vegas a couple of weeks ago and setting up a workshop. We had an hour to do a workshop on diversity being the new frontier for the uh, Academy of Arts and Interactive Sciences. So you can imagine talking about that. How can you talk about that in an hour without preaching? So I had to put my coaching hat on and uh which is great because i don't want to preach people don't listen to preachers they want to be they want to know what the goal is what the opportunity is and how they can potentially get there and this article for me if this was my last ever post i would be happy about it and i'll i'll share it with you uh once it goes live
0: yes uh, yeah we'll make sure that we put that in the uh in the bio for the podcast as well so that our listeners can hear can uh, read it thank you Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, uh, as we kind of close Caroline, where can people connect with you? So I know that you have uh, multiple places again, that you're writing, you have your company, you have your own personal platform. So where can uh, the Resist 40 community engage with you?
1: They can just, uh, find me at LinkedIn at O Caroline Stokes or Twitter at O Caroline Stokes or my website for theforward.co.
2: Awesome. Well, Caroline, really appreciate you joining the podcast. I think something that, you know, I learned or I could take away from this is, you know, being in my 20s and not necessarily knowing exactly what path I want to, to travel down is that concept of just trying new things, you know, like not being afraid to, to do something different or to travel or make a change. So I think that's a big takeaway for me. And, and you know, I uh, appreciate you talking about your story and sharing some value here today.
1: I I cannot tell you how grateful I am. It feels like it's a little bit of therapy. It's a little bit self-indulgent. And I'm very grateful that you wanted to explore. So thank you.
0: And there you have it, folks. Another tale of the Resist Forty Tales of Outliers podcast with an absolute legend, Caroline Stokes. And Caroline, thank you for coming on and talking a little bit about what you're involved in. And I emphasize a little bit because you are doing a lot right now and just a lot of value shared in this episode. Everything from conversations about AI and VR to coaching to company culture to how to go about actually pursuing the passions that you have. So as always, If this tale was of value to you, if you think that it would be of value to someone else, make sure that you are going on and subscribing to the podcast. Make sure that you're leaving us a review. We would greatly appreciate it. And make sure that you're sharing this, whether it's through the iTunes podcast app, whether it's through SoundCloud, whether it's through social media, make sure that you are sharing this podcast with someone who you think it would impact. And as always, make sure that you're going out this week, absolutely crushing it, resisting your forty and sharing the word. so we hope to see everyone back next week have an awesome week and we'll talk to you all soon